When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, acrobatics and flavor combinations. The things that I enjoy doing the most and the things that I think are the coolest of the things I can do are just sort of exotic trampoline dismounts, meaning going from the trampoline onto another surface. I like to land in ways that people think I'm going to die. I was going through a terrible breakup at the time, to be perfectly honest, and the moments where I was on stage, I had to just be like, oh, I have to focus on what I'm doing. So this is great. It was kind of like a moving form of meditation in a sense. They will beat themselves up for the glory and the prestige of knowing that they did it, but it's not a sustainable thing. And at the end of the day, you have to know that there will be younger, sexier, more talented, whatever people who will come up and eventually replace you. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So our first guest is someone I came across online, and he was doing these things where, I mean, I've seen gymnastics before, but this was just amazing. This is acrobat and Cirque du Soleil performer Scott McDonald. So looking back on it, like, when did you realize that you were acrobatic? When I was a kid, my cousin Amy joined sports acrobatics, which is to the sort of bystander, it would be indistinguishable from cheerleading to an extent. And I used to say that to her and just kind of infuriate her because if you were to tell someone who's in sports acro, oh, it looks like cheerleading, they would probably just shank you on the spot. And I thought that was really cool. And I'm an extremely competitive person. So when I saw that, I was like, I want to learn how to do that. One time we were on a beach and my aunt, her mom, was just kind of telling her how to do a front walkover. And I was like, oh, okay, I want to try that. So tried it, failed, eventually figured it out and just kind of got hooked from there. You know, you grow up watching anime and playing video games and stuff. And you're like, I want to be a ninja. That looks cool as shit. You just kind of assume that if you have the ability to do a flip, you're just going to be doing it everywhere. Like you're just walking down the street and you're like, oh, flips. Yeah. And for a while, I think that is the case. But eventually you're just like, I don't need to just gratuitously do this all the time. And I think 
if you're me, at least I'm fairly introverted and I just don't want attention in the first place. So I will avoid like the plague doing anything acrobatic. If anyone can see me, like if you're on Mars, you're too close. As far as I'm concerned, I just want to be quietly doing my thing in the corner. Um, I'm kind of the anti-performer in a sense like that. Like if I'm on stage for an audience and it's like, this is my job right now, that's one story. But if I'm just training, I just kind of want to do my thing. You kind of discover that you're a little bit good at it. When did you kind of start to really pursue it as a career? Um, well, I was trying to open a recording studio, oddly enough, when I was around 23-ish, when in my early 20s. And at this point, I was still actively avoiding trying to do it as a career, it being circus, just because I was afraid of taking this thing I loved and making it just not fun at all. But anyway, I tried to open a recording studio, trying to be in another industry. It failed magnificently. I lost all my money and I was like, cool, uh, I guess it's time to go try that other thing. So I went and auditioned for some smaller shows like there's... um. Cirque de la Mer, or it's now called Cirque Electrique, which is a summer show at SeaWorld. And they do trampolines and some flips and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, I'll audition for that. Uh, did not get it. I was a bit too brutally honest in the interview at the end of it. And then um, tried out for some other shows. Eventually got into a summer show in Santa Cruz, California, and was doing a show up there for three months or so. And realized it's actually a lot of fun. And it's super cool when you're on stage. You don't really think about anything. Like I was going through a terrible breakup at the time, to be perfectly honest. And the moments where I was on stage, I had to just be like, oh, I have to focus on what I'm doing or I'm going to die. So this is great. It was kind of like a moving form of meditation in a sense. My curiosity, what did you say during the interview? <laughs> um. Okay, so I got through this whole audition process, and at the end, they were like, yeah, so what makes you want to come work here? Like, what's your motivation to do this? And I think they were hoping for somebody who was a little more enthusiastic than I am. Um, <laughs> you can probably tell by the tone of my voice, I'm not a super, <laughs> oh my god, it's been my dream my whole life. I wanted yeah, to do yeah. for Shamu. So, uh, yeah, I just said, hey, well, usually I pay to go to a gym and do flips. But in this circumstance, you would be paying me to go do flips. And that sounds like a good deal to me. So that's my motivation. Are, are acrobatics and gymnastics different things? No. Or the uh, same thing? Gymnastics is a form of acrobatics. I think of acrobatics as sort of a blanket for all things flippy or circusy or like juggling, for example. I would consider acrobatics, handstands, trampolining, gymnastics. Anything that you could imagine seeing in stunts or in a live show, whether it's medieval times and they're sword fighting and then doing a token backflip or the parkour you see in a lot of commercials, all of that I would call acrobatics. Did you ever do gymnastics? Like, would you be a good gymnast? Would a good gymnast be a good acrobat or do those things not necessarily correlate? It can. Um, a good gymnast, I would say, is by default a good acrobat of sorts but not necessarily good at all acrobatics. It's very specific to disciplines. When we get hired for different jobs, it's usually based on both the disciplines in which you specialize and also your physical profile. Um, if it's an ensemble act, which most acts are, 
it's really awkward if everyone is a certain height, a certain build, a certain race. And then there's like the one awkward guy there who just doesn't fit in with the whole visual scheme of it. It's not meant to be misogynistic or racist or anything like that. It's more just the idea of like, if you have, for example, in one of the Cirque shows in in Las Vegas, there's a team of male Japanese rhythmic gymnasts. So they're typically five, four-ish. And for that act, because of what they're doing, where you have to catch each other, flip over each other, things like that, it physically wouldn't work to have awkward me there being six feet. And it also wouldn't work from a audience's perspective where you're just like, why is... Why is the one What's, dude up there, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes so. sense. And that's like for people who are listening to this, that's kind of just how entertainment works necessarily, yes, right? Absolutely. Like it, that's that's that yeah. everybody plays the same game in that. And if mm-hmm. you miss out because you're not this, that's just that's just how it kind of works in entertainment. Yeah. Yep. Um. Now, do, what do you specialize in a certain? Um, no, I am someone who's brain constantly needs to feel like it's getting somewhere and i always want to feel like i'm progressing at something so in order to stave off the uh feelings of limbo i try everything just so that basically every time i try a new skill by default i am improving at something i figure you can't really get worse at something you've never done so if i'm having a day where i'm just like ah, this isn't working i just go and try something i've literally never tried or I'll take something I know how to do and try it in a different way. Um, most people twist in one direction, for example. My dominant direction to twist or spin would be to my left. So it's almost the equivalent of trying to write with your other hand to do it the other direction. It just feels unnatural and foreign, even though you understand the mechanics of it. So long-winded answer, but no. I think of myself as what's called a generalist in the circus industry. And it is a thing that you audition as like some shows you would go and do one specific discipline like, oh, I'm going to go out and do my chainsaw juggling act. Sure. Or there might be another show where they need someone who can be doing a handstand on top of something, doing a high dive into water, doing partner acrobatics with somebody else. In, in the industry, is it generally better to be a generalist or is it better to be like have a very specific skill? The only one of a couple of people who can do this. It depends, because if you can only do one specific skill or two specific skills, but you are the absolute world's best demigod of whatever that thing might be. As long as you don't get hurt, you're great. But if you get injured and you can't do that skill, then there goes your income. So I also find that some shows, it just, it kind of depends where you want to work. I'll put it that way. So for me, I find that I can kind of hedge my bets by doing as many things as I can think of. So if somebody leaves a show or someone gets injured and they need to replace someone temporarily, I can be like, I can do it, pick me. But I would say, honestly, financially, the best thing you could possibly do would be a clown or an actor. The characters in the shows get much, much more um, pay for less physical destruction of themselves, typically speaking, than the house troupe, which would be the generalists or the non the non recognizable people. So in the industry, is that what everybody is kind of, you know, is it like a corporate structure where you're trying to work your way up into being that? It can be. Or it's um, not necessarily like a natural career progress- progression. 
I, <laughs> the the sort of joke amongst Cirque du Soleil performers is that the natural career progression when you're done performing, at least, is to go become either a realtor or a Pilates instructor. And it's very, very, very accurate. Um, but within the company or within shows in general, it sort of just comes down to what that person wants to do. Um, your lifespan as a performer basically can run from your teens to your 40s, depending on how heavy impact the thing you're doing is. But if you were, say, a clown, you can be a clown as long as you want, as long as it still makes sense in the context of the show. Uh, a friend of mine's grandpa is 80 something and he still performs as a clown for Cirque. Um, but some people will start as house troop and they're like, ah, I want to become the person with the recognition. I want to be a character. And then perhaps from there, they decide they want to go into coaching or artistic direction or some form of management. It really is one of those things where there's so many people behind the scenes that you don't see on the stage that there's so many different careers you could go into. You could become a rigger. You could become uh, an audio technician. You could become a stage manager. And a lot of people who are technicians within Cirque are former performers, which is also kind of reassuring when you're a performer to know that the people who's the people who are basically in charge of you remaining safe understand what's up 30 right mm -hmm. are, are, are you kind of angling are you are you looking at the door or not I've... not quite yet so for me performance is something that i just kind of do but it's not something i've ever woken up and been like can't wait to be on stage that's gonna be awesome like there are a lot of performers i would say the vast majority of performers do feel that way the way of i want to be on stage i want to be seen and I think it might be a personality thing. It might be just that a lot of performers, I mean, I think it must be easier to be a performer when you actually want to be performing. Um, for me, the athletic side of it is what interests me much more than the performance side. I don't want the adoration of the crowds. I want to go do cool stuff and have the adoration of my peers more than a thousand people who don't really know what I'm doing. Because at the end of the day, you go on stage and you do something that might seem really impressive to an audience member, but it has to be something that's sustainable for you. So it winds up being something that's very usually quite easy. It looks impressive. You do a backflip and people are like, Oh, he did a backflip. But like a backflip is as easy as walking at a certain point. You're just like, Oh, here's another backflip. Cool. Like there's no jolt of adrenaline. There's no excitement. It's just, it's the same as tying your shoes. You don't like be like, Oh, here we go. So, uh, it's, anyway, yeah, we, we've talked to a number of different kind of career paths on this podcast, and it is always interesting that er, er, no matter what your job is, at some point it is still a job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, all right. Yeah. Maybe like these backflips, but it's still Tuesday <laughs> and I got to worry about my car payment. You know what I mean? It yep. is no matter what you're doing, the job is still a job. Yes. Now we... You mentioned a little bit financially. I used mm -hmm. to, if you want to just tell us straight up, you can tell us straight up, but I'll mm -hmm. ask this question more delicately. Are people in this industry closer to ramen noodles or mansions? Depends. Um, I would say closer to ramen noodles, generally speaking. But I think, especially in Vegas, it's very cheap to live here compared to, say, LA. Um, I think you can make a very comfortable living working in Cirque. Um, as an acrobat, if you're a character, then you'll make an extra comfortable living. 
if you were an artistic director or a company manager, you would be doing pretty well for yourself. But no one is going to get loaded off being a performer in that capacity. Like, I think part of it is that you are intrinsically not highlighted to the audience. So it's not like you do something and then they're like, that was Scott McDonald. Follow him on Instagram. Give him money. It's more just like, oh, you bow and you leave. Right, um, right. You have a specific skill set, but you are replaceable at the end of the day. Yes. And I think a lot of people, especially the people who have just come into the performing industry, don't understand that. And there's a little bit of naivete that sometimes I feel gets exploited by people who have been around long enough to know, oh, this person will drink the Kool-Aid. We don't really have to pay them that much or they will beat themselves up for the glory and the prestige of knowing that they did it but it's not a sustainable thing and at the end of the day you have to know that there will be younger sexier more talented whatever people who will come up and eventually replace you there's no 75 year old acrobats doing trampoline i'll put it that way i mean there could be someday but then at the same time like i mean i'm not saying 75 year old can't do trampoline (laughs) but the typical workload if you're doing a Cirque show is 10 to 12 shows per week plus rehearsals. You work five days or six days a week, two shows a day. So everyone in the audience comes, they see one show and they're like, that was cool. And then they leave. You stay backstage, keep your makeup on, eat a cliff bar and get ready to do another show. So that's also part of the reason that most of the things you do on stage are relatively easy. It can't be sketchy because you would either endanger yourself, your castmates, or the audience, depending on the circumstances of the stage. So it has to be something that is reliable and consistent, both for the sake of safety and also for the sake of no one wants to pay to replace you and also pay you to be injured, you know? Your typical day, from training to performances, like, how Mm -hmm. long are we talking about? Like, what's your typical day look like? A typical day would be waking up probably around now, so 11.30-ish, noon-ish. You would go into rehearsal. This is for a resident show, by the way. Um, Touring shows work on a somewhat different schedule, but a resident show, just to be clear, is a show that is permanently set up in one of the casinos here. So, for example, at MGM Grand, there's Ka, at Mirage, there's Beatles Love, and so on and so forth. So for one of those shows... You would wake up probably around noon. You would go to rehearsal usually anywhere between 3 and 5. Around 5.30, that's when all rehearsals will stop because they're going to start setting up the stage for the actual show itself. You have to be there by a certain call time, which is usually 5.45. The show itself would be at 7, from 7 to 8.30. And then the second show would be from 9.30 to 11. And then you would take off your makeup. You would take off any wigs or costume pieces that you were wearing. Get home around 11.45, midnight, eat dinner, and slowly decompress. Go to bed around 3-ish. So this is also from the perspective of someone who doesn't have kids. If you have children and you have to be up and take them to like school and all that, it's going to be a bit more complicated and involve less sleep. 
So it's now, do you have to then do kind of your own physical training outside of it? Or is it simply the process of like the rehearsals in the show enough to get most people through? It's more than enough. It's too much. Um, it becomes extremely difficult to do anything outside of rehearsals and show. And I feel like a lot of performers, if they're like me and they're more about the athletic component of it than the being on stage component, there's sort of this cycle you go through where you train to get to a certain skill level so that you can get into a show, you get into the show, and then you realize you can't train anymore, which might then lead to you leaving the show so you can train again. And around and around you go, jumping from show to show. If your priority is to be on stage and you're very happy where you are, then it doesn't matter. You're just glad to be there. And you might change some things here or there in your performance or in training with whatever remaining energy you have. But for me, I find it very difficult if I'm doing a full-time show to still feel the satisfaction that I take from training. This is probably one of those questions that it's really easy for somebody to ask and not necessarily easy for the person being asked to do. Mm -hmm. But then if, if it's more about the athletic pursuit, why not take the real estate job and then kind of train for that? Like, why not take that route necessarily? Mm, and again, that's one of yeah. the things like, oh, it's really easy for you to say. No, no. Random I mean, guy. That's, that's very valid. Um, for me... I think I continue with it because it's more a sense of doing something that I still get enjoyment from, but I try to get more and more on my own terms as I go along. So there are, well, post pandemic, I don't know if there will be, but there were roles within Cirque as acrobats where you would be what's called an on-call artist. So if they're particularly low on people that day, let's say people are sick, people are injured, people are out on some kind of personal day, then they will call someone who is part of the show to come in. Like you couldn't just call someone off the street and be like, Hey, we need someone who magically knows this whole show and fits the costume and knows the choreography and so on and so forth. So it's like, you're a sub in a sense. Um, for me, I prefer that because it means I have the time and freedom to go do whatever I want, but I can also come in and still do that as a job. It's a little less commitment. Um, but I think also in the long term, and I don't really know where the long term is going, to be fully honest. Um, I think that continuing to be a performer is a good resume builder. No one is like going to be like, ah, oh, you did this. Like, we're not going to hire you. Or, oh, you didn't do this. We're not going to hire you. But it's more the sense of, building validation um for me wanting to get into Cirque du Soleil in particular was out of validation it was like you as an acrobat if you aren't in Cirque and any acrobats who are listening to this and if you're not in Cirque yet I'm sorry because you'll have heard this too many times if you are an acrobat and you have not yet worked for Cirque du Soleil every single person you meet who is not an acrobat will ask you this. Oh, are you in Cirque? No. Oh, have you thought of trying out? Have you auditioned? Yes. Oh, so what happened? Didn't get in. Oh, so you're not good enough then. It's it's not even meant to be patronizing or condescending. It's just the way that people's minds work, I think. But if you were to extrapolate that to any other career, you'd be like, oh, you're a computer programmer. Yeah. Oh, do you work for Google? No. 
oh, so you suck at computer programming. Like it's, it's basically that. And also within the entertainment industry, because things are so typecast as, oh, you have to be this height, this gender, this race with this skill set. You could lose out in any number of auditions, not because you were not even the most talented person in the room, but simply because you weren't what was needed in that moment. From from a standpoint, like why are you good at it? Is it is it physical? Is it mental? Like what about you makes you a good acrobat? Mm. <laughs> Me in particular? Yeah. Uh, and and let's let's toss all humbleness and humility aside like what what about you makes you good at it like are you just incredibly being, athletic or uh, no i wouldn't say so um for me the thing that people seem to take away from my acrobatics is it being creative or unique i don't necessarily think of it as being particularly creative i just think of taking things from disparate disciplines and trying to combine them or just landing or doing things in unorthodox ways. Um, but on stage, very little of that matters because I'm not the person who chooses my choreography for a given show. Like some gigs, yes, if it's a one-off kind of corporate performance or something like that, sometimes they'll be like, oh, just go up on the thing and keep people's attention for half an hour. Then in that circumstance, I'll make up what I'm doing. But if you're on stage for Cirque or something like that, it's not you that chooses what you do. It's almost like the actors in a movie didn't write the script. They didn't yeah. choose the framing. They didn't choose the lighting. So a lot of people will blame a performer for the choices that they didn't make in that sense. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, you are pretty athletic, right? Yeah, like I would imagine you'd have to be. Yeah, you have to be. There are there's sort of a standardized way of fitness testing within Cirque that they use just to kind of make sure everyone's keeping up on their stuff. I based my athletic evaluation in can you dunk a basketball? I think I could, but probably just because I can jump reasonably high and I'm yeah. on the taller end of most acrobats anyway, so it's a little easier. Like if you think about most gymnasts, you see most of them would probably be around five, seven or so. So, and depending on your specialty within gymnastics, perhaps much shorter than that, but it's very rare to have a very tall gymnast. So even as someone who is not particularly tall, I'm six feet within the realm of acrobatics, I tend to stick out a little bit more in that sense. Would your career be completely different if you were five, nine? Is it that um, kind of a thing? I think it would probably... It might have been easier to get into some roles had I been, but I think at the end of the day, for me, a lot of what kept me from getting into shows for quite a long time was just a lack of conventional ability. Um, as an outsider who was not a gymnast, not a competitive trampolinist, not any form of formally trained acrobat, there are a lot of things that someone who was within that industry would understand to look for but I didn't even think of, for example, pointing your toes, keeping your legs together when you're doing a flip, um, pointing your hands, even like it's little subtle things. But if you think about it, when you if you were to take a freeze frame of any flip, you would be very easy to tell the difference between an Olympic gymnast in their form and someone on the street, like even just down to the sense of like they might have like this claw hand in the air. Yeah claw hands don't look pretty to an audience you might not 
like know it, but it's there. It's like if you were to see a b-boy or a ballet dancer, they're both excellent in their own ways, but it's different stuff. So it it's like little subtle things like that that you wouldn't really necessarily know about trying to get in if nobody told you. It it kind of reminds me necessarily when you see like an NFL player do the backflip in the end zone. Mm-hmm. Like he clearly has plenty of athletic ability to do it, oh, yeah. but it doesn't really look like a great backflip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. are you are you ready for some listener submitted slash harder questions? Ask away. What is right now for you like your favorite? I don't know if trick is the right word, but mm-hmm. the thing that you look at and like that is the best thing that I can do. Well, right now at this exact moment, I am still rehabbing from ankle surgery, so I'm pretty limited in what I can actually do. Um, But in general, the things that I enjoy doing the most and the things that I think are the coolest of the things I can do are just sort of exotic trampoline dismounts, meaning going from the trampoline onto another surface, usually a big mat. I like to land in ways that people think i'm gonna die but i don't like catch a double flip into a cartwheel or into a handspring or something all the things where if if you were accustomed to doing flips and you were accustomed to seeing flips done a certain way you would recognize the moment i kick out as the oh he is going to die right now kind of moment and they'd be like oh psych this is on purpose i enjoy doing that like the willy wonka thing yeah, basically. And I mean, I'm not doing it for the sake of like making people go, ah, but it is a funny, unintended byproduct of it. I just like to try and be a little more exploratory and experimental with the acrobatic stuff. Like, I don't think of there being a right or wrong to it. I just like to do stuff and see what happens. Can Can you explain to people how I just because I think it's the thing it's everybody's familiar with, like necessarily, could you explain a technical term of how to do a backflip or is it something that you can just do? Oh, or no, can you explain it? Like jump up, yeah. tuck your abs, move your, like, do, do they kind of go through it that, or is it something that people can either do it or you can't do it? Oh no, no, not at all. It's, it's absolutely just a technique. Anyone can do it. Um, to describe a backflip, you jump, basically jump as if you were trying to dunk a basketball. So jump, very high as high as you can lean back somewhat only slightly by throwing your arms up and then as your chest moves behind your hips you pull your knees up to your chest you grab you flip the great thing about backflips is you see the ground very early when you're upside down you can look up which is actually down and see the ground almost instantly so it's less difficult to uh to place the landing than a front flip, for example, where you would kick out and you see the ceiling or the sky and you're just like, the ground is somewhere down there. Um, But yeah, every acrobatic thing is a technique. It's all about timing, fear, and doing the right thing. Um, I could teach you how to do a backflip, for example. Like, it's not like you have to have a background in anything. My roommate at one point learned how to do a one-arm handstand just by teaching himself from watching videos of people and up until that point i always thought okay to do a one-armed handstand you must be some kind of like circus god who was raised in a country where human rights abuses are all over the place like just beaten into submission since you were four to do this one-arm handstand and then when my roommate figured it out i was like wait well if he can do it then 
so can I. And I believe you can apply that same mentality to any skill, acrobatic or not. How do you get over that fear? Right? Because I would always imagine like I could do this or I can mm. break my neck. <laughs> um, you get over it. I think the best way to do it would be to go to a place with mats, with a foam pit, with equipment and have someone actually coach you through it. Because if you can make it safe for yourself, I think you're going to have a much easier time trying things. Like it's hard to adjust your technique for something when you're paralyzed with fear over it. Like you can't just have the lucidity that it takes to be like, Oh, like my toes weren't pointed toe point might be irrelevant to the actual technique of doing it, but it will make it look better. But like things like, okay, when you learn a backflip, the natural inclination is to throw your head back and look for the ground because you're like, holy shit, I just want to know that I'm going to survive this. But in doing that, you actually cut your height short. The ideal way of doing it is actually to stare forwards for pretty much as long as you can until you've hit the apex of your jump and then allow yourself to shift your gaze and look for the ground. So there are a lot of things that are counterintuitive when it comes to the techniques. And I think the safer circumstances you can put yourself through if you could have somebody who knows what they're doing a gymnastics coach or somebody spot you through it and physically help you do the motion so you can feel it on a trampoline or somewhere that's not going to kill you like don't learn to backflip by jumping into a pool i'll put it that way because if you don't go backwards then you just lost your face so but i would imagine that at some point you get to a situation where like you can't half-ass it, right? Like you have yes. to either do this thing entirely, yes, or you don't do it at all. Like yes. how do you, how do you get yourself to a place where you know what? I'm just gonna go for this, and see what happens. Like precautionary fear, necessarily. <laughs> this might be the worst advice I could give, but it's the true advice. Um, at a certain point, you do just have to go for things, and the thing that I used to do. And this sounds like mental illness, but it is still what I would do was I would imagine if I was playing a video game, like you're playing Sonic the Hedgehog and you have to jump over all these spikes. And if you don't commit to jumping over the spikes, you're going to die. But if you just do it, you'll be fine. I would try and imagine that my body was just uh, a video game avatar that my mind was controlling because it is and think okay if you just do it right and you just think about what you have to do and nothing else then you'll be fine and kind of trick myself in that sense because if you're playing a video game you don't feel any pain if your character runs face first right. into a brick wall you're just like oh look at the stupid guy so i tried to imagine i was that guy who i could run into a brick wall and generally speaking it worked out for me i've definitely had some terrible injuries but most of them were not from that they were from carelessness or just not paying attention like my worst injuries have all been from non non-acrobatic things like i fractured my skull stepping off of a trampoline i broke my rib jumping on a trampoline with a friend and they lost control and came down with their wrist on my rib like i this injury that i'm recovering from right now i tore two ligaments in my ankle completely doing a jump with a full turn like just a vertical jump with a 360 nothing like, like crazy just simple dumb stuff the holy what is the holy grail of the acrobat industry like the mm -hmm. thing that every the trick that everybody's trying to do or the thing that everybody's trying to get <laughs> at this moment employment but <laughs> yeah, um, that's... in general i think that's 
kind of subjective from person to person because if you were say a hand balancer your holy grail would definitely be certain specific moves that someone who is a juggler wouldn't care about uh and vice versa for me personally it's all the stupid tricks that i have in my head that i'm looking forward to trying once my ankle will allow me to but i think for a lot of people it's like instagram fame or tiktok fame or something like i think everyone's out there for whatever it is that validates them and i guess really the answer is probably actually just working for cirque du soleil is probably on the top of most acrobats lists even if they don't actually want to just so that they can say they can or they did so they can finally answer that annoying question from people on the outside of yes i work for cirque like shoo stop asking What's you don't have to ask what you did for Cirque. Like my first job for Cirque, for example, I was working with Chris Angel and my job was very unacrobatically demanding. Like I would do a couple flips off of boxes and that was the majority of my acrobatic output for the night. But I was technically an acrobat for Cirque du Soleil. Is there yeah. somebody though that like, is there a Michael Jordan of acrobats? Well, in the in the sense of Michael Jordan, there's kind of this legacy idea to it where it's like, okay, he was there and he was amazing. I think with acrobatics, the level is always increasing. And especially with the the advent of streaming video on the internet and social media, people can see what's out there and what has been out there more easily and see like, oh, this is sort of the accepted standard level that people are at and try and build from there. So, for example, I started acrobatics with tricking, which is kind of uh, martial arts inspired acrobatics. It's more what you would see in stunts and movies and things like that. And when I started, nobody had done what's called a double cork yet. At least nobody knew that anyone had done a double cork yet. Turns out there were some people in like Brazil doing it, but they didn't have video cameras and they weren't uploading it to the Internet to be like, yeah. guys, check out this thing. So. At that time, a double cork was like this mythical holy grail. Uh, as of a week ago, someone just did seven doubles in a row. So they did a backflip with two twists, landed on one foot, swung the other leg up, did another backflip with two twists off one foot. That's what a double cork is. Landed on that same foot again and repeat five more times. So that's been done now quad corks have been done so a backflip off one foot with four twists like the level is just escalating to an insane degree and i think that it will continue to escalate to an insane degree all across the board like you see calisthenics athletes who are doing things that previously would have only been accessible to like top level gymnasts easy looking skill that is actually incredibly hard all of them at first <laughs> uh, i think I think air flares or windmills. So when you see like a break dancer doing the stuff where they're just kind of swinging their legs around and it looks like a perpetual motion machine, it really isn't. Every single instant of that is a calculated decision. And with time and practice and muscle memory, eventually everything becomes easy. Eventually, like you see people doing it in Mickey Mouse costumes and things like that. But like when you're first learning, I think every skill is the hardest like you could say a backflip is the easiest looking skill that's actually really hard until you can do it. And then it's the hardest looking skill that's actually really easy. Um, That's all the questions I got. What's coming up next for you? 
Hmm. Good question. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely uh, it been interesting. Depends. It's, it's yeah. been interesting asking that question over the last six to eight months when COVID hit and basically everyone's answer is, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my plans were, and I suspect my plans will continue to be what they were, but I will probably work for Cirque again in another show or two, just because it's, fun and interesting i guess uh i'm interested in going into the stunt industry because that was actually where i was planning on going until i finally got into cirque i was auditioning for four years before i actually got a job with them so i was literally at the point where i was just like i'm gonna try out one more time they're gonna tell me i'm not good enough i'm gonna go on with my life and go do stunts that wasn't what happened mercifully but uh i think that's where i will probably be spending quite a bit of time once it's a a viable thing to do again. I am interested in teaching workshops um, because it does seem like a fun thing to do. But for me, the ultimate goal would be to get into a position where I am paid to just train the things I enjoy doing, which doesn't really exist in this industry because it's not baseball or basketball or any sport where you actually get paid. Um, Or to train people of a very high level how to expand their acrobatic horizons. I feel like everybody has a lot of untapped potential that they don't necessarily see because you get so used to doing things in a specific way. That's what really interests me. I would love to help like create new shows for Cirque or take acrobats who are already amazing and teach them how to do something that just makes them a little more unique. I think just trying to find a way that I can make a career out of furthering my own abilities and also furthering the abilities of really high-level acrobats and performers. I want to thank Scott so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media sites. We're Profoundly Pointless on Twitter and Instagram, and we have also included his information in the episode description. Okay. Now let's go ahead and bring in John Shaw and see if there's anything amazing that he can do. Can you do any tricks? Like, tell me a trick that you can do. Well, I think I've proven several times uh, and released a video that I'm quite the yo-yoer. No, dude. We had the professional yo-yo guy look at that video. You just swing it around. You didn't do any trick whatsoever. Does eating does eating a lot of a certain food count as physical attribute? What uh, what what are you eating? I have some friends of mine that want they, they want to see if I can eat 10 sticks of butter. What's your previous record? Uh, I mean, I, I've never I've never tried to eat butter. I don't think it would be that difficult. I do, however, think that my heart would stop immediately after probably the, the first package of, of, of butter. I, I feel like anybody eating one <laughs> stick of butter would be pretty impressive. I think you should start out with one and not go straight to 10. Like, how did you get to 10 is the one? Okay, let's do 10. Why didn't you start with five or three? Because it's me. And I, 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 I sprouted my mouth off and said, five sticks of butter. I bet you I can eat 10. Yeah, dude, you got to think about that stuff before you just say something like that. I just don't think it'd be that difficult. Two bites, cut it in half, swallow and move on. So you're looking at this like it's just any other kind of food. Like, I could eat 10 loaves of bread, so I could easily eat 10 sticks of butter. (laughs) Uh, Essentially, yes. And by 10 loaves of bread, I mean 10 slices of bread. 
Well, it's completely different, dude. Like, you've had butter before, right? Of course. Who hasn't? Okay, so then you should know that you couldn't eat 10 sticks of it. I bet you couldn't eat one stick without throwing up. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe I can get get uh, it on video and and post it on the podcast here. We'll see. If you hit three, I'd be amazed. If you hit 10, I'm pretty sure you're going to die. I'm a thousand percent positive I could I could crush one stick of butter and, and move on to number two, probably in under a minute. Okay, that's a bold statement. I especially like it that you have no basis of this whatsoever. Like, I'm not the kind of person that's just going to make some claim. Like, if I've never done a pull-up before, I'm not going to see some guy in the park trying to do a pull-up and be like, I can do 40 of those, no problem. But you're going to go straight to 100. Yes, I'm making a blind, bold statement, because, but it's because I think I can do it. Okay. What do you generally feel like you have? More confidence or more ability? I'm going to have to go more ability just because several people throughout my entire life have said, I'm the kind of person you never see coming. Watch out, John McClain. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm not like, you know, I'm not super buff or I'm not, I, I don't look super intelligent, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's some surprises to be had here and there, I think. So I, I would probably go, go with that one for sure. Okay. I'm, so here's my immediate thoughts on that. I don't know if that's because, like, okay, maybe your ability is much more than what people would estimate, or because, like you mentioned, you're not that buff, you don't seem like a smart guy, like maybe people's expectations are low. Now, do you think that your ability exceeds your confidence because people have low expectations or because you're just truly underestimated? I mean, I would say underestimated. However, I also think that as a society, we don't really give anyone you know, we don't give a lot of people, you know, just outwardly support. A lot of people are very pessimistic and automatically assume the worst about somebody. I I am always fascinated in how much confidence people who are not good at something have. Like people who are not very smart are incredibly <laughs> sure that they're right. And people who are not very athletic will always tell you how they're about to score 50 on you. It's incredible to me how much confidence people with no ability have. I agree 100% with what you just said. I'm not one of those people. I can't make people believe I can do something, I don't think. I would say that if somebody's good at something, they never have to tell you that they're good at it. And if somebody tells you they're good at something, they're probably not that good at it. (laughs) Never trust somebody who tells you they're good at something or boasts that they're good at something because odds are... They probably are not very good at what they're telling you they are. Okay. What would you tell somebody you're good at though? Hmm. Uh, I mean, once again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really a boaster, but if I was to come, I mean, if I was to come out and just, just say, Hey, like I'm good at this probably. Uh... <sighs> Man, it's so embarrassing. I'm pretty good at competitive video games. Okay, what video games are we talking about, and why is that embarrassing? There's a lot of people that. Well, what, what kind of games are we talking about? Yeah, so it's not really embarrassing. That was the wrong, that was the wrong word. I, I I might be embarrassed. You're embarrassed by it. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm I'm embarrassed by it because that's the only thing I can really think of. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty good at uh, like first person shooters, like Call of Duty, um, Halo. I was really good at Rocket League for a while when that was going on. Um, I I don't get a chance to play a whole lot anymore, but I'm. I'm still pretty confident in my ability in those. Are you good against other people or are you good against the select group of people that you're playing with? Because that's a big difference. 
No, I, I'm pretty good against, you know, whoever, for the most part. I mean, I, I would put myself at moderately above average, I think. Okay. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being terrible, 10 being really good, you would put yourself at what? Six and a half. I, I'm not I'm not in that upper level, but uh, I, on a normal basis, I, I, I do pretty well for the most part. Okay. All right. Okay. I, I was going to go like something sappy, but figure nobody really wanted to hear that. So what's, what was that going to be? I, I mean, I'm, I'm a good dad. I, I'll tell people I'm a great dad. man. First of all, your kids are way too young to say that you're a good dad, right? You can't put something in the oven, let it cook for 30 seconds and say, Ooh, that's going to be some good spare ribs. Like you've got to, you're way, it's way too early to say that you're a good dad. You've got to wait until. Because maybe you think that you're doing a good job, but in reality, you're completely screwing up your kids. You can't say that you're a good parent until your children are 22 years old. I don't think you can put an age limit on it. I think at any point after, I'll say six months, you can say that that you're doing a good job. How can you say it be based on what? The fact that they're still alive? Because what are they, what, the child's not doing anything at six months. It's literally just sleeping, eating, and pooping. That's it. So if the, kid, if the kid's alive and you haven't broken any of their bones or dropped them i won't even say 22 i'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and say 27 wow that uh 27 that's don't I, talk I, me into saying 32 because i'll say 32 I, I i'm not gonna say another word about this i you know what's one thing you're you can like you would tell people you're good at hmm. i would really like to I'm a pretty objective person. I don't think that there's anything that I'm particularly good at. Nothing that would be over a seven. I really wouldn't say that anything is over a seven. Now, outside of the obvious, you know, the LeBrons and, and people who are just extremely good at something, how how much, uh, like, what percentage would you give a, the population as of having something that they're good at, like, over a seven? Oh, it's probably pretty low. I agree. I would say less than 2% of the population are particularly good at one thing. I would say that everybody has something that they are probably in the top 75% of the population. But I think it's extremely, extremely rare for somebody to really be good at something. Like, I think everybody has something that they could say that they're a seven at, but I would say that only 5% of the population could really make a claim that they have a nine or a 10 on being good at something. There's levels to it. And the person who's really, really good at something is incredibly rare. And it's probably only, I would say two to 5% of the population. Yeah. And I I would probably say less than that. I think there's a hundred percent people who are confident that can fake something and become fantastic at it. And there's less than 2% of say like a Bill Gates. How would you feel if you were seven feet tall and not good at basketball? <laughs> um, pretty, pretty shitty. I'm sure. I mean, I think if I was that tall, I would be more upset. Like if I was just a bean pole, because then, then you don't really have a whole lot of avenues, at least if you're that tall and like built, there's a lot of different avenues you can go down. That would I feel like that would be the worst thing to be super tall and not good at basketball because people would always ask you about it. You play basketball? Like, no, I'm 
a seven foot one computer programmer. <laughs> I mean, like, that would suck. <laughs> I, I just uh, the stereotyping would get so tiresome after a while because everybody would think that guy plays basketball for sure. <laughs> All right, dude, we've taken up enough time. What's your thing? The Monstars, bro. Um, Space Jam 2 coming out this summer. Check it out. Uh, all right, let's give some shout-outs. We'll start on uh, Twitter. Uh, we'll start with Victoria, Blair. Uh, we'll move over to Ray, then on to Camp Patty, and uh, end on Twitter with the Tiny Red Giant. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I I just love that that handle and that name. So appreciate tiny, Does Tiny Red Giant have a profile pic? He does. Are they, they, oh, they did. What do they look like? Uh... Uh, a little uh, it looks like a little red giant but uh, you know it's just a picture so i assume uh maybe they're just really you know maybe they're super tiny you know they they look little they don't look tiny to me they look little but you know whatever either way uh check them out at tiny red do giant they, do they appear red in any way <laughs> uh like looks have like red their hair. facial hair is red yes oh so they're a ginger that makes <laughs> sense okay so it's more of like the complexion or it's more of the hair as opposed to the complexion. Uh yes, yes. Okay, we should probably stop before we see something racist. Well, you, I mean, you were going on there. All right. Well, thank you, everyone there. And then on the Instagram, uh, Brian Brook, uh, Joanna, Mary, Rhea, and Jerome Valeska. Uh, Jerome Valeska 007 is uh, that person's handle. I, I thought long and hard about these questions, so I hope you love them. Um. What are you more likely to try if you're at a restaurant, Nick? Uh, the secret sauce or the secret meat? Oh, secret sauce. <laughs> I'm I'm completely okay with, with any kind of like secret ingredients in sauce, but I don't want to mess around with any kind of secret meat. That seems like <laughs> secret sauce seems to be like a trademark kind of thing. Like they can make their name as a restaurant. Secret meat seems more like a back alley. Hey, man, we're trying to cut costs here. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm in the air on that one. I I don't know. I have to think about it more. Um, what what would tell you more about a person? Uh, someone who farts in your vicinity and owns it, or someone who burps uh, in your vicinity and owns it? How loud is it? Can you hear it? Yeah, both are audible. Not only to you, but say like to people around you. Well, okay. In general, now remember here for people who don't know this who listen, I do not have a sense of smell. So neither one of those has ever bothered me. What generally stinks more, a fart or a burp? Uh, I mean, generally, probably a fart. Okay. But if somebody burps pretty good in your face, is it usually bad? Yeah, usually it's terrible. Worse than a fart? I, I would say so, but that's just me. I'm pro- I could be in the minority in, 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 with that, but I, I don't think I am. Well, okay. I think, all right. Wait, what's the question again? Who do I like more or who do I respect more? Uh, well, well, I I, I, I had it like, uh, you know, what tells you more about a person, but we can change it to who. Oh, you somebody who more. burps, somebody, somebody who burps in your face. <laughs> right. Because that's much more, I think, of a conscious act like you could you could accidentally fart and maybe try to like farts. Farts are usually a little bit funnier. Right. Like you could accidentally fart. You might fart on purpose. It might just kind of be a tension breaker. A fart is usually a funnier thing. Like people would be more likely to do that. If you're going to go ahead and burp on purpose, that says a lot more because a burp is the more disgusting kind of you. You really didn't have to do that. I just love the question. I'm pretty proud of myself. Um, 
It's, it's all right. It's okay. And then uh, the last one here. So the wife and I. Uh, oh boy. We got we got a uh, a free trial to HBO Max, and we were all excited to watch Wonder Woman '84. Uh, which was a gigantic pile of shit, by the way. So if you haven't watched it, don't do it. You and I've everyone heard, with Now, it. look, I've heard both ways. I've heard some people say it's um, good, but I've heard more people say it's not good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it was just a gigantic pile of poop. But that's, you know, once again, it's coming for me. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, either way, uh, the question is... Uh, Remember, this is the guy who liked Blade. He considers Blade to be the best comic book movie. So go ahead. Anyways, uh, do you think um, that movie theaters are going to be non-existent within five years? No. No, I don't think so. I think that it's going to be scaled back and that there's going to be a lot of places who maybe these movies that wouldn't be, you know, a movie that might make like between 50 and $100 million. I think that that's more likely to be released on any of these streaming services. But ultimately, I think that they're going to release these smaller movies on streaming and maybe put them out in theaters. But I think the big blockbusters, the Marvels, the star Wars, those kind of things are still going to come out in movie theaters. See, I, I'm going to say, I, I think there will be, there still might be the company, but physical movie theaters will not be around. I'm going to say 10 years, but I, I think everything's going the way of streaming a hundred percent. Right. Well, that's, that's a wrong prediction. You're still going to have movie theaters. People still want to go out to a movie, especially if it's like a super big blockbuster. I think it's going to be greatly reduced, right? Like they're not going to release Weekend at Bernie's Eight into movie theaters. But then, but then, but then, how do I mean? You know, I know there's projectionists that spend all their time, you know, predicting what's going to be. But then, how you know, how do you decide as a studio which movie goes there, which movie goes there? I mean. I don't know, I don't, dude. That's their job. They can figure that out. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think there's a lot, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I would lean towards going 100% streaming within 10 years. Okay. You want to put a bet on it? Oh I'll God. even make it, I'll even make it a big wager. I'll go $5. <laughs> uh, sure. In 10 years. So uh, January 10th, 2031. We'll we'll revisit this. If this podcast still exists on January tenth, two thousand thirty-one, we will revisit this. Now, what's the thing though? Is are you going to say that all movie theaters are going to be like blockbusters, like completely gone? No. So, and this is only to the United States only. By the way, this isn't around the world. Uh, but yes, I will say that physical movie theaters will be gone. Like they'll either be they'll either be Amazon warehouses by then, or there'll be something else. But you will not have AMC's. You will not have uh, Imagine theaters. Uh, everything will be online streaming uh, at that point. Okay, all right. I'll take that money. All right, all right. Are you are you all done? Right. Are you ready for our top five? Let's go. I'm pretty excited about this top five. Um, so our top five is top five flavor combinations. What's your number five? Uh, it's pretty bland, but you have to have it, and that's salt and vinegar. What? Yeah, salt and vinegar. You ever have salt and vinegar chips? Or uh... Yeah, I have. It's not good at all. I wouldn't put that even an honorable mention. Salt and vinegar, anything that's like when you have like a vinegar chips or anything like that, nobody actually likes that. That's one of the few things where you eat that, and you're like, is this good or is this really bad? You keep eating them, but you don't necessarily enjoy it. Salt and vinegar belongs nowhere in the top five. Not even an honorable mention. Am I? I'm legitimately shocked by this ridiculous opinion. All right. Well, what's your number five then? 
alcohol and soda. Oh, I mean, you know that's a good one. You're gonna like. Mm, I don't know about rum and coke. I've heard it's good, but it's not nearly as good as salt and vinegar. I mean, I I'm not gin a mixer. tonic isn't good. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do like gin and tonic, so I guess right. I can't. Uh... You can't. There's nothing you can say. You wanted to because I crushed you on salt and vinegar, but you know deep down in your heart, you're like, oh man. <laughs> if, if that w- if that's what makes you happy, then yes, we can it leave does. it at that. Okay. All right, what's your number four? Uh, chocolate and peanut butter. Okay, I agree. I agree. It's not in my top five. Uh, it's not in my top five more for logistical reasons, but okay. chocolate and peanut butter is definitely up there. What do you think is the generally accepted chocolate to peanut butter ratio? Like, are we talking 60-40? No, you got you to split it down the middle, 50-50, or at least do your best. I think that's too much peanut butter, honestly. I think the ultimate chocolate to peanut butter ratio is i'm gonna go ahead and say 65 35 65 chocolate 35 peanut butter i mean i might i might go 55 45 maybe in favor of chocolate (laughs) all right as long as you've got i think the chocolate has to be the dominant one in there well my number four is chips and salsa okay I, i might have misunderstood the top five a little bit uh because I thought we were doing just flavor combinations, not necessarily like, you know, items that are together. But okay, fair enough. All right. Well, I feel like chips is like you can have chips flavored chips, right? Regular <laughs> regular chips is still a flavor of chips, is it not? So I, regular chips and regular salsa then. I think, uh, you know, I, <laughs> it's just going to be an interesting uh, two list this week. It's, it's all good, man. It's all good. I did actually happen when I ran this by my wife and said she said the same kind of thing. And then I asked her what her suggestion was. And she said chips and guacamole. Like, that's so different. <laughs> it's all good. You know, we're uh, we're, we're just different. Um, my, I say that. And then my number three is uh, cherry and Pepsi. So, like, you know, cherry Pepsi. Hmm. Hmm. So I don't necessarily have, you know, alco- like alcohol and soda. I broke it down to. Cherry, cherry and Pepsi. Pepsi. How do yeah. you feel about Cherry Coke? Uh, I'm I, I'm not a Coke fan. Okay, when you think about Cherry Pepsi, though, Cherry Pepsi, if I remember, is one of those things that it's really good if you can find it in a fountain drink. Not so good in a can. Man, I miss a good one. I have not had a fountain drink since the pandemic started. What's your rankings? All right, what's, give me your rankings for soda consumption vehicles. In between, <laughs> out of a fountain... Out of a two-liter bottle, a one-liter bottle, glass, out of a can. How are you going to do it? It's, it's it's from one to five. It's definitely fountain. Right. And then we'll go can, mm. glass, one liter, two liter. I don't like flat anything, any kind of carbonated beverage whatsoever. I will dump it out. That's how. Really? Bougie I am, I guess, is the word about it. I think that I don't think that's a ridiculous statement. I don't think there's a lot of people who keep like a flat two liter in there and then once they realize it's flat, they keep going. My it's not like was- cereal where I can get I can get through some stale Cheerios. That's fine. Put enough milk on it, you're ready to go. Mm, ah, see, even even stale things, man. I'm let's you know. Uh, not a fan. I'm gonna go fountain glass with ice if but the drink is already cold. Like the drink has to be cold. You can't put a warm drink in cold ice and expect that's going to be any good. But I'm going to go fountain, glass with ice, 
two liter can, one liter. I think the one liter just doesn't have, for some reason, it doesn't have like the volume or something that makes it taste good. But anyway, my number three is cheese and anything. Yeah. I mean, do you have any, uh, any specifics with the anything or anything cheese and anything? <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree. I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't put that on my list uh, specifically, but I would agree with you 100%. Okay. What's your number two? Um, strawberry and banana. When's the last time you had strawberry, banana, anything? I had a Not strawberry banana cream. milkshake uh, three days ago. <laughs> right. So basically, it's just all ice cream. It's not like you ever took strawberries and banana, the fruit, and put those together. It's essentially just ice cream, right? Yeah, bro. <laughs> Come on. I just want to make sure we're not doing anything healthy for the guy who's going to try to eat 10 sticks of butter. No. Thinks that's a good idea. No, I, I probably should start dieting, though. Yeah, dude. I wouldn't. Well, wait. You should probably try to eat this 10 sticks of butter <laughs> then start the diet right then, <laughs> you don't want to get sidetracked yeah yeah what's your number two salt and pepper that's literally like oil and vinegar man it's just or you know it's just it's the most blandest things that you can put out there but i guess you okay have what spices are you gonna come with you got turmeric and paprika <laughs> uh Fancy I mean, pants over there i mean if i uh, if I had to pick my just favorite, some rose, just some nice rosemary and a little bit of a uh, chard. Just because I like to to cook with spices, all right. What spices are you using, Lowry's? Don't come <laughs> at me with this big fancy like I've got this special rub that I use on my meat. It's for, for for those who don't uh, don't listen to this regularly, Nick for some reason uh, is jealous of of other people who cook. I think, and he loves to rip on me. All the time no, about it. Because you come at it and you're like, I've got this special seasoning that I'm going to use. And it's like you bought it from Target, dude. No, I. first off, I've never bought seasoning from Target. Okay, where do you get your seasoning from? Do you have, do you have John Shaw's secret spice? All right, what's in it? I mean, it depends per whatever kind of meat I'm using. Well, just give me one example. Uh, like in hamburger meat, I, I like to mix in a little chili powder, a little Ooh. mustard seed. Wow. Yeah, it adds to the flavor. It's fantastic. Dude, if you're not coming at me with some spices that I've never even heard of, your special rub isn't impressive. Ketchup. I would rather, if I had a choice between your special salt combinations or whatever it is you got going on and ketchup, I'm going to take ketchup every single day. That's fine. You'll be missing out. You'll be sitting there in the corner while everyone else is enjoying whatever I made. I mean, you can be that guy. I've had friends who have said that, and you know what? They always come around. Always. All right? I, You know, I don't have a lot of skills, but you know what? A woman likes a man who can cook. Okay. All right? Not I'm, all of us can, you know, drug them and marry them like you did. All right? Well, dude, it's not my... Look, if you got connections, use them. Uh, what's, your, what's your number one? <laughs> uh, I have sweet and sour. Ooh. I did not think of sweet and sour. I think that's I think that's a risky one to put in your top to put that high in your top five. Honestly, I can see it as a top five, but it doesn't go above four and or four or a five to me. It really doesn't. What's your number one? Peanut butter and jelly. See, I probably would have put that on my list had I had I thought we were doing actual items and not just flavors. But it's 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 all good. I kind of understand what you're saying. But what, like peanut butter and jelly, that's that's good stuff. It, that's it is. Flavor. I mean, it's, 
Peanut it's, butter is a flavor. Jelly could be a flavor. Well, you, you said flavor combination, so I was thinking like spice combinations. But I don't oh, okay. want I, I don't want you to go and get on your spice hating rant again. So, what kind of jelly are you going to use? I like the mixed kind, like the the three flavor kind. Okay. Okay. Uh, with seeds, I'm not you know I'm not no preservative kind of guy. Put it all in there. I've yeah. never. Why would you want seeds? It's a pain in the ass. I guess I, I just, I don't know. I enjoy it. You know? Okay. Um, I would go blueberry. Blueberry would be my preferred jelly of choice. If it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit fancy. It's probably going to cost you an extra 50 cents over like strawberry or grape, but I would go blueberry then strawberry. Well, it will look good in your refrigerator that you can see through without having to open the door. That way I can know. I can know how many different kinds of fancy jelly that I've got in there. Okay. What's in your honorable mention? Uh, I have ketchup and mayo. Uh, oh, that's it. Uh, herb, oh, that's a good one. Any kind of herbs and oil that mixture is really great if you've never had it. Uh, maple and chipotle. Um, and then I have uh, I have what oil and pepper. Maple and chipotle, like maple and chipotle, like the restaurant, like anything from chipotle, and you just put some maple syrup on it. Jesus Christ! No, not at all. You know, it, 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 I'm not going to even go into it. Uh, oil and pepper, and then uh, sour cream and onion. Mm. Well. Okay. Um, okay. And then I have I have anything with jalapenos. So like any any spicy with any spiciness will do. Okay. Uh I the only other things other things I had in my honorable mention were salt and caramel okay. and biscuits and gravy. I mean <laughs> you don't gotta tell me about biscuits and gravy. Dude, biscuits and gravy is good. Yeah, man. I'm not gonna bore you about how I make my own gravy. We'll just oh, God. I'm sure you do. Let's hear it. Let's hear how you make your own gravy. Uh, well, I, I will save the uh, the the minute the minute. Is that uh, is that a minutia. word? It's a hard one. I'll give you that. It's minutia. Um. So besides the the basic kind of of you know the flour, the cornstarch, the water, blah blah blah. It's all about the mixture of spices. What spices do you put in your gravy? Let's hear these spice, spices, uh, so fancy pants. It's obviously country gravy, right? Because that's the only kind that goes with, with biscuits. Um, right. And what, once again, it's it's a little paprika. And this is all the top of my head, so I'm gonna I'm gonna miss out on some things, I'm sure. But paprika, uh, chili powder, fennel seed, mustard seed. Mustard seed is great in everything, by the way. Uh, cracked pepper, and then uh, some red chili flakes, and then. So basically, you just put a whole bunch of spicy shit in there. Yeah, but but it sounds like a nightmare. Is what, but it all blends itself. It it's fantastic. Okay. See, I just I just don't subscribe to this whole feeling. Like, oh, I made all these things. You took one of those out. Does it still taste basically the same? Like, oh, I don't have any of this today. My country gravy (laughs) will never be the same, and my wife's gonna leave me because it's not gonna be. That's what I got her. You probably don't even know the difference. I, I'm sure you're correct. I'm I'm not saying that that probably isn't the case, um, but you know, it's I, I I don't know. It's just it's just what I've come to do, and I enjoy it. Okay, that's gonna go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Want to know what you think are some of the best flavor combinations? And obviously, if you can tell from the list, we're, 
we don't even really seem to be sure what the criteria are for flavor combinations, except it has to be just two things. So what two things mixed together do you really like? That's pretty much it. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.